This week, we're busy getting ready for Thanksgiving, an American holiday that marks the end of the harvest season. But in church, our readings focus on a different end as the church considers the coming day of the Lord, the end of all things. To help us think about this and consider what it means for our lives, Jesus tells the parable of the talents. This passage, along with the one coming for Thanksgiving and for next Sunday, all are stories which have an unexpected ending. And so we're going to approach this, the, this text this way. I'm a teacher, sorry, got to give you an overview. There are three parts. In the first, we're going to look at the parable itself and how easily it can be misunderstood. Then, we're going to follow the money to unlock the good news that's in this parable. It's really good news. And then thirdly, we'll look at what the parable says about our lives as Christians and, our wit and the witness we offer because of this good news. So here we go. Part one, understanding the parable. Jesus tells this parable during the last week of his life when he's in Jerusalem for the Passover. And during the first part of the week, he taught in the temple and had an awful lot of confrontation with the religious leaders. So he's just left the temple for the last time, and he tells his followers that not one stone will be left on another, and they get worried and wonder about when's this going to happen and what are the signs of it. And so in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus talks about that. And his discussion includes three parables. The parable of the ten maidens, you heard about that last Sunday. The parable of the talents, that's this Sunday. And the parable of the sheep and the goats, that's next Sunday. And notably, Jesus is doing this just before his end, for he is about to go to the cross for you and for me. The story is a parable, a particular form of teaching that Jesus used where he took something out of the daily life of his followers and used it to help them get a glimpse of what the reign of God is like and even when it will be. In this parable, a householder gives his entire possessions to his servants. To one he gives five talents, to another two, and to another one. And then he goes away. How do the servants respond? Well, the one with five earns five more. The one with two earns two more. And the one with one buries it in the ground. After a long time, so that answers the when question, we really don't know. You heard it in the second lesson for the day. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 
Well, after a long time, the householder comes and settles accounts with his servants. To the first two, one presents five more, the other one presents two more. He says, well done, you've been faithful. Enter the joy of your master. But the other one has a rather <coughs> negative view of his master. You, you harvest where you don't sow, he says, and you gather where you do not scatter. I was afraid, so I buried it. Here it is, as you gave it to me. You wicked and lazy servant. And he takes the talent and casts the, that one into outer darkness. So what does this mean? Kind of frightening, isn't it? Kind of sounds like it's all up to you and me. We've got to earn our way into God's favor. You're shaking your head. We're going to get there <laughs> pretty soon. You're right. But it, that's what it sounds like. And I'll tell you why it sounds like that. Because we're afflicted by two syndromes that influence our interpretation of this parable. Syndrome number one is the you've got talent or America's got talent syndrome. You all remember that? crazy TV show. I never watched it. It drove me, drove me crazy. But it was a talent contest, right? And the one who did the best, the one who got the golden buzzer or whatever the, <laughs> the indicator was, was the winner, right? It's all about how well you perform. And when we view the parable that way, our, our Christianity becomes one of performance, of works, of all those shoulds that you and I should be doing and all that guilt that can weigh pretty heavily and we don't know what we think we should be doing. It warps our understanding of ourselves and what it means to follow Jesus. And we fall victim to that greatest of all sins, thinking that with God, there's got to be something I've got to do. The second syndrome is the Santa Claus syndrome. Now, I got nothing against Santa Claus, but when we start thinking of Jesus like Santa Claus, you know the song, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout. I'm telling you why. Jesus is coming to town. That's Judgment Day. He's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. Is that what Christianity is about? Shake your head no, please. <laughs> Good. We know better. I love audience participation, and you jumped right in. That's great. It's better my students sometimes. They just sit there bored. We know better, right? By grace you've been saved, Paul writes, through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of your works. Or, in his letter to the Romans, he talks about nothing separating us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know that. And you heard it again today in the first reading. You are children of the light and of the day. God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him.
Maybe we've missed something in the parable. So, time to follow the money. Part two, unlocking the parable. A parable is a story drawn from the daily life of Jesus' followers. We live 2,000 plus years later at a different place, in a different time, with a different culture. And the big challenge with parables is to not read our experiences back into the parable, but rather to ask, what did Jesus' followers understand when they heard the story? What did it mean in their cultural circumstance? The key is a talent. When we hear the word talent, we think of skill or ability, something like that. But a talent in the ancient world was a weight used to weigh money. It was a way of telling how much you have. Now, we count our money. If you want to know how much is in your checking account, you can open up the app on your phone, push the button, and okay, down to the penny, right? We count money. They weighed money. Why did they do that? Well, if you went to the shop and were buying something and you had a coin and it was more than what was worth, you know what the shopkeeper did? He got his chisel out, chopped a piece off the coin, and gave you to your change. So in archaeology, we find all these little fragments of coins. That's the change. So if you want to know what you have, you have to weigh it. A talent is 75 pounds. 75 pounds of coins. Now that automatically changes how we view this parable, right? You see, you know, I showed you a picture with somebody had five coins and two coins and one coin. This is 75 pounds. The guy who got five talents needed a donkey to carry them away. 375 pounds. And the one with two talents, he needed a buddy to help carry that 150 pounds. And the one who buried the one talent in the ground had to dig a pretty big hole for 75 pounds of coins. Okay? Now, a talent is worth 60 minas. That's another weight. Okay? A mina is about one and a quarter pounds. That you could carry around pretty easy. And it's equal to about 50 shekels. This is the shekel. That was the coin for the temple tax that one paid every year. Remember the story of the corn in the fish's mouth? That's the coin we're talking about. A shekel is worth three denarii. That's, this is what that coin looked like, a denarius. And it's important because that's the daily wage of a worker, a denarius a day. Remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard? I'll give you a denarius if you'll come and work for me. Fine, they came. Everybody got a denarius. So, if we do the arithmetic, a talent is worth 9,000 denarius. Okay? That's quite a bit. But how much is that, really? What would this amount to for the followers of Jesus? Well, what is a talent worth? Most of them were day laborers. If you take six days a week times 52 weeks a year, you get 312 
denarii. But nobody worked six days a week. Remember in the parable of the vineyard? He went out at the ninth hour and there were still people who hadn't been hired? He didn't get hired every day. And there's weather and sickness and all that sort of thing. So most figure that people lived on about 200 denarii a year. Take 9,000, divide it by 200, and you get enough for 45 years. It would take 45 years to earn that much money. Now, the normal lifespan in Jesus' day was about 35 years, and that's because half of all children died by age of two. So if you lived to be five years old, you probably had a lifespan to about 50. That was the normal lifespan, 50 years. If you then lived at age five, started working around 10 or 12, and worked for a lifetime, you would have enough for a lifetime. A talent is worth enough for a lifetime. So let's use that and retranslate the parable. The householder gave one servant enough for how many lifetimes? Five lifetimes. He gave the second servant enough for two lifetimes. And he gave the third servant enough for one lifetime. And suddenly, the meaning of the parable becomes clear. The parable is not about using your gifts and talents to earn some kind of well-done pat on the back from God. The parable raises this simple question. What are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? What are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? And that's the whole point of the Christian gospel, is it not? God has done it all for you in Jesus. God gave it all to you in your baptism. That breastplate of faith and love that the second lesson talked about, that helmet of the hope of salvation, that's yours already. God has done it all for you in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is making this point with his disciples just a couple of days before he was going to do what would bring this all about by going to the cross for you, for me, and for the whole world. What are we going to do now that we don't have to do anything? And that brings us to part three, the application. A young pastor had arrived at his first call in a small congregation in Nebraska. Got there in the fall, and it was time for confirmation class. So he invited the sixth grade graders who were starting confirmation to come to church on Tuesday night along with their parents. Everyone's a little nervous about this. We don't know this new guy. The kids didn't know him, that's for sure. Put him in a classroom, had the kids sit in front. And the parents were in the back, some sitting, some standing. The pastor sits down with the kids, gets to know them a little bit, and says, Now, 
I've got a secret for you. It's a secret about confirmation. When you're in confirmation, the pastor says, you don't have to go to church. Dead silence in the room. Dead silence. And then the kids began to giggle. Oh, goody. And the parents, oh my God, we should send this guy back to the seminary. And then the pastor said, when people calmed down a little bit, then the pastor said, it's not that you've got to go to church. It's that you get to. It's not that you've got to. It's that you get to. And for that young pastor, the rest of confirmation was unpacking what that means. The Christian life is not about what you've got to do, what you should do, but what you get to do, what you can do, all because of Jesus. And what a difference that makes in your daily life. Your relationship with your spouse. I'm about to celebrate 46 years. I had no idea how good this was going to be. Because for both of us, it's not about what we've got to do, it's what we get to do in serving one another in our lives together. It's the same way with a friend. My wife loves retirement. I flunked retirement. She loves it. Because her, yeah, I took, I'm taking another job, it looks like. <laughs> Should we want to do that in retirement, she says. <laughs> sure. But for her, retirement is all about, now I get to be a better friend. And sure enough, this last week she said, honey, I'm taking the car today. We only have one car, so that's a little bit of a challenge with taking this job. I only have one. I'm taking the car today because fr another friend of hers up in St. Cloud had been in the hospital with pneumonia and was home. I just want to go up and help her. I can do that. I'm retired. Notice, I can do that. That's what the Christian life is like because of Jesus. It's not what we've got to do. It's what we get to do. And that's the core, at the core of what it is to be a missional community. We get to look at all these opportunities that God presents to us. In fact, this parable opens us up to an unbelievable range of opportunity in our lives as Christians, in our lives as witnesses to Jesus, in our lives individually, and in our lives as a community of the faithful. Oh, the opportunities. And, you know, as I've been having conversations with folks here, with Monica um, and, and uh, some of the leaders, and looking at your calendar, it's like, my goodness, <laughs> the opportunities, right? Right? The opportunities. They're everywhere. And at the announcements at the end of the day, I'll bet there's going to be more than one opportunity on that list. Right, Chad? Sure. All sorts of opportunities. It's amazing. So I'm going to hold up one of those opportunities. There's a new thing that's going on here, I understand, from our staff. This youngish adult group. What a great 
place to be focusing congregational energy because that demographic is the one where almost every church is in big trouble. You're focusing on that, and that's a wonderful opportunity to provide support for these people, Tuesday evenings. And there's an opportunity, though, for people who aren't youngish adults. You know what that is? They need babysitters on Tuesday night, hour and a half. That's an example of an opportunity. And if you've got the up, and if that opportunity fits the gifts that God has given you, time to take advantage of the opportunity. That's the wonderful thing about being involved in mission. There's so many opportunities. You know the poet Emily Dickinson? One of her most famous poems is I Dwell in Possibility. I put the poem up there so you can see. Her point is that poetry is, a, is, a, is an element of possibility. That's what she's laying out. We Christians, by the grace of God, dwell in a different type of possibility. It's not about writing poetry, but it's about exploring how our lives and witness can become a poem of praise to God. Look at the last two lines. The spreading wide of my narrow hands to gather paradise. What a way of thinking about Christian life and mission. Spreading wide our narrow hands, even as Jesus spread wide his hands on the cross to gather paradise, to welcome the grace of God in our lives, to welcome others into this gracious experience of paradise. We dwell in possibility. The poetry of the Christian life is what we get to do for others, since God has done it all for us in Jesus. An unexpected ending. God does it all for you in Jesus. You get to do the unexpected as a result. Those unexpected endings inspire us to do things that others might not, but we get to. God's grace is always surprising. Time for the takeaways. We're at the end. Takeaway num number one. God has done it all for you in Jesus. If you remember nothing else today, if you remember this, you've got something to take home. God has done it all in Jesus. Like that weighty talent in antiquity, more than enough has he given you for a lifetime and for eternity. Takeaway number two, what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? That's the opportunity that's before you from this parable. Point number three, our life and our mission it's a matter of opportunity, and it's about being open to those opportunities. Dwelling in possibility, spreading wide our narrow hands to gather paradise.
May these takeaways go with you this week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.